Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Session. We are in a we are in for a special treat today. Why? Because we have none other than Dr. Pete Carney. And guess what today's topic is? For all our sax players out there, we have early era sax styles. So whether you're a saxophone player or not, we know you're gonna enjoy this session with Dr. Carney. He always gives us some great information. But before we start, you know, I wanna let you know, I'm your guest host today, Michael Carnodal. We're gonna have a great time. Uh, but I wanna acknowledge our sponsors. And also, if you're here, you have questions, don't forget type your questions in that chat feature and make sure uh, just spell it out and we'll try to save some time at the end of the session to answer any kind of questions. Um, so be sure to check out the studio archives of our past video sessions at clearwaterjazz.com slash education um, and outreach section is brought to you by our friends over there, Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy, as well as our Young Line podcast available wherever you stream. That's brought to you by our friends over at Marine Max Clearwater. Just search Young Lines Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. So just a few past sessions that Dr. Carney has done here with Clearwater Jazz. Uh, Safer at Home, Advanced Improvisation with Simple Tech, parts one through three. Did a great session on acid jazz and chili hop music production techniques. That was very cool. And building a good solo. I mean, who really doesn't need that? We all need to improve on improvisation. It's never in the journey. So just a little bit about Dr. Carney. He's a director of jazz studies at State College of Florida in Bradenton. Um, he's done so much. You'll probably see him out in the community playing. Uh, he's headlined plenty of festivals, including the Rochester Jazz Festival, Arbandine Festival in Scotland, and you name it, he's out there. But we're going to uh, go ahead and stop all of this because we want to hear this great knowledge that he's going to give us today. So, Dr. Carney, the stage yeah. is all yours. Thanks a lot, Michael. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to, again, participate in everything Clearwater Jazz does for our region. Um, this is an uh, interesting workshop um, I wanted to do um, because it's something I hear out at the jam sessions or it's worth talking about to young players and older players. Um, and this is sort of a two-part one. The first part of this workshop is on... Uh, early saxophone styles and or, or again it doesn't have to just be saxophone but that's just kind of what we're looking at a couple of horn players here um, and then the next part is like modern saxophone styles um, and it's important because a lot of times what i hear at jam sessions or gigs is other there are a lot of cats that might be really advanced at playing uh bebop or they might be able to play the latest uh, you know, tunes by Joe Henderson, like Inner Urge or Giant Steps by Coltrane. But then a singer comes up or an older style piano player comes up and um, all of a sudden, like the cats that are really good at the new stuff aren't aware enough about the old stuff. Um, and it's, I don't want to say it's simple, but you have to think of improvising with a different mindset when you switch gears, what you don't want to be, and this is my opinion, but I think it would probably hold up with most people, uh, most professionals is you want to be able to play whatever the gig requires, right? Or you want to be able to play with the singer 
um, in the era that they're singing from or the piano player or whoever. You don't want to be like super modern uh, John Coltrane when somebody else is trying to play like Louis Armstrong. That's uh, somewhat opinionated, but um, I think I think most people would agree with that. Like you have to find your way into each gig and every song is something of a stylistic world, right? I feel like that makes you more versatile as a musician rather than having the sort of attitude that we had maybe when I was younger in general in jazz, which was I played the way I play or I'm playing my solo. I think that today um, more people are trying to be, you know, have a lot of personalities inside of you. And the big, one of the bigger stumbling blocks here is early, early jazz. Again, the reason I especially want to do this is because a lot of younger guys stumble with one or the other. So people that kind of specialize in modern jazz oftentimes aren't good at jumping into an old, a really old Duke Ellington chart, right? Um, and sometimes the people that are, they might have come from um, like an Ellington, uh, you know, competition school, um, essentially Ellington type school, and they're very versed in tradition, but they might not be as up on some of the uh, newer approaches to harmony. Um, so I wanted to th go through a couple solos and just play a couple clips and talk about um, how you fit into that genre. If we think about improvisation, um, one of the misconceptions horn players have is that I'm improvising on top of the chords of the piano, right? Or I'm improvising on top of the bass player and I'm kind of playing whatever I want. Yes, it's true that you can play whatever you want, but in the early style, especially, um, we look at Louis Armstrong or we look at Sidney Bechet, what we see is that they're not playing on top of the bass player, they're playing with the bass player, okay? Or they're playing, they're arpeggiating the chords um, straight above the bass player. They're not necessarily playing the extensions like the nine and the... Uh, the six of the chord or the um, sharp 11. You're much more a game of arpeggios. And surprisingly, um, a lot of younger cats aren't really trained in that. So you have to think about your chords from the bottom up, especially in the early style. You know, are you really playing the, whole, the, the chord as it goes up and down? Um, well, let me, let's take a look at some examples. I wanted to start with Sidney Bechet. I'm just going to play a little bit of it and talk about what's going on here. Share screen. All right, let's look at, this is Blue Horizon by Sidney Bechet. We're gonna kinda, you can see it too. That's the beauty of it. There's nothing wrong with just sitting and looking at some of these transcriptions. I'm gonna make this bigger. Um, and what you'll see here are just beautiful outlines. You know, like this is an F chord, F-A-C. Look at Sidney Bechet, A-F-A-C. It's not, um, it's not other stuff, <laughs> you know? He's not playing other stuff. The beauty of Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong and like early Duke Ellington band is these cats finding magical stuff with the primary chord material. Let's give that a listen 
and kind of dig into some of these chords as they happen. Right, so all of that was just chord, chord, chord here. The second bar, he just goes straight up to the dominant seventh of that B flat chord here. Then he comes back down, and then there's just a little bit of a turnaround on this F. Ba, ba, da, da, da. Right? So, and the other thing is, I think if you think about improvising, is if you, what if you just think of it as chords and scales? Right? <laughs> just, like, to me, good improvisation most of the time is chords, scales, or some other weird stuff, like quotes or weird shapes. But most of the time, 80 to 90% of the time, this is just a chord. This is just going up his chord. And then there's a little bit of a scale motion going down, a little turnaround on this third of the chord right here. Let's keep going. Let's listen to it one more time and then keep going. A little passing note. Now he goes right to the seventh. Right? That's just seven of the chord down to one. That's it. He repeats this phrase that he played before. Our straight arpeggio. Right? And again, C, C, he's kind of in playing the fifth of the C, sorry, the fifth of the F, or you could think of it as anticipation of the C7. Oops, I don't know where my screen went. Oh, sorry, my um, program decided to do it. Uh, now would be a good time to update a flash player. <laughs> Let me see if I can get rid of that. Bring back Sydney Boucher. Click to exit. There we go. Wait, there we go. Back it up just a little bit again. That's it. There's an F triad. Now here's the C7. Look at that. E, G, E, C, B flat. That's just a straight dominant chord, folks. You know, it's the beauty of what you does with it, or the it's sort of the beauty of the precision of outlining those chords. Back down to the root, the root, you know. Fifth and carries that fifth over. He plays this again. This is what he played before. Right, and there's one of the sort of confusing parts. Like, this is where, I, when I was younger, music theory always fell apart for me on this part. He plays an A-flat over the F7, right? Which, like, in theoretical world, we could call that a, a 
a sharp nine, but it, to me, it's not. You know, I used to think, well, I guess it's sharp nine, even though it's just an F7 chord. Usually, like, that's not indicated. What it really is, is the blues, right? And the blues is the sort of like the joker, the wild card that can just break the rules at any given point. You can grab a, some blue scale and it, it's kind of your wild card. Like it's the same sort of up here with this C hanging out, right? Any note that's part of that sort of foundational blue scale from the key gives you permission to play it at any time. But other notes don't really get that same pass, you know, and that's like a hard thing to sort of, I've never really wrapped my brain around why that works. I've never, I, I can honestly say I play a lot of blue scale and I don't know why it works because it shouldn't work sometimes, <laughs> but that's the beauty of it is that mysterious magic of the blues, right? <laughs> but again, if you look at everything else he's doing here, look at this. This is a third of the chord, fifth, third, root, seven. He's not even adding a six or a nine. And then we've got this little blues lick down to the root. Keep going. Cool little chromatic thing here, right? Little chromatic, so A flat to A. It's kind of, uh, um, you can sort of get away with that from ragtime, you know, from sort of the Sousa March era, that little chromatic lifting thing is part of jazz, but because it's sort of part of, to me, it's part of Sousa or ragtime and this like history of like chromatic motion in the bass, which he's kind of, in a sense, like, simulating a bass player here. Let's back it up just a touch. Right? Like he could have played, he played the C all over here. He could have gone back to that C, but because he's hitting the B flat seven, he changed that one little note here to the D. That's how aware he is of his chords, you know? Um, and that's like, that is the mystery of like why Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet were so far ahead of everybody. In some sense, a lot of people not on their level were like, they could play the blues scale. They could kind of get the chords, but these two guys, Louis and Sidney could never miss, you know, they could play every single chord through their solo and they could outline the chord in interesting ways constantly other people could like kind of do some nice stuff but they weren't as consistent you know let's just look again nice g Another thing that's important here is this A flat to G. So now he's getting, after the first chorus, now he's adding a little bit more harmonic uh, range, right? He's adding this G now because, in a sense, these other notes have been, like, well established for a while. That G sounds really cool because it hasn't happened yet. And what else is neat here is this A flat to G, one of the most 
beautiful intervals in jazz is the major seventh interval that he plays right here. It's A flat up to the G. Anytime you can find a major seventh leap, it's going to sound cool if it fits the chord. Um, I don't know why that is. I think it's, I feel like it's because it's just below an octave, right? And if you play an octave leap, it's not that interesting. But when you play that major seventh, your ear kind of feels like it's leaning up towards that octave a little bit. Check that out as this happens again. How he plays this, we'll back it up to here, this G again over here. And um, listen for this major seventh leap over here. Okay. I missed it. I'm going to back it up again. Here we are. This is a staircase. Also, a pedal there on the F that's really cool. Look at that, those F repeating. He's going to do it again over here. Those little pedal points, it's, a, it's kind of a Bach technique, you know? Bach would do that in, one, in his fugue or something. Major seven. All right, so here again, what's going on? Like, like Carney, you said that like he's not going to play too many nights or anything. He sort of isn't, right? This is really kind of his F blues scale. F C B flat A flat F C. That's all F blues scale. That's why he can he kind of gets away with it. Um, again, this becomes more commonplace. If we're talking about modern jazz, people would sit on this nine here a lot more, Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and everybody would, um, would lay on that extension of the harmony more than the early cats would. If, if Bechet uses it, to me, it's often related to some sort of blues um, substitution. So what's not, what else is not on the paper here is Sidney Bechet's really assertive vibrato, you know, really aggressive vibrato, really aggressive style, real aggressive bending between the notes. Like the drama is getting to the note. How long can he hold that? How long can he slowly bend that pitch up to that note? It, it's not the... In the modern jazz, it's more the notes that are the story. And some in the er, in early jazz, to me, it is like getting to the notes that's the story, right? Can I make it to that note? Like, can that pitch drag, drag the... It's like you're dragging the punchline out or something. You know, you're dragging the story out as long as you can. Whereas the modern jokes are more cutting 
and you don't it's not as much sort of animated storytelling it's more like cut and dry very dry sense of humor a sense Another cool thing is he's just like laying out on the hanging out on the bottom of the horn here. You know, he has not played a high note yet. He hasn't played a high note. He's going to, but like that just uh, like your listener loves, you know, dragging the story out, compress the range of your horn and stay in the stay in like a small range for a little while. Finally. Another thing, this little beautiful, like, um, sort of syncopated um, kick here. A lot of guys aren't as good at this stuff. Like, everybody can play the, this blues part. But this little rhythmic kick, that, like, attitude type syncopation here is what, the music requires, especially in the older style. Check it out one more time. I know like this is, it's just a little thing like this, but it's everything. You know, it takes guts to play something this short and with like that much sauce. Because <laughs> you really have to kind of put your, um, you put yourself on display in a sense, emotionally, when you play something that short. Because it's very, uh, like, overly decisive. I'm going to say this now. You know, it's like a guy's playing uh, dominoes and they slam the thing on the table. It's like that. You can, if you don't, if you can't slam it on the table, <laughs> you can't play with Sidney Bechet. Check it out. Right here. You know what I mean? Like, not many people can, to be honest, can pull that off. That to play like a whole little group of short notes, and then a little space, and then a kick after that. You know, it's real, it's real gutsy playing. You know, check it out one more time. I know it's a small thing. It seems like a small thing, but man, I can tell you that not enough people understand the sort of like the jagged part of the slow blues that's important. This is like the jagged rhythm that gives her that like little jolt of lightning in the, in the sort of slow bluesiness kind of wakes people up. big surprise he kind of comes down the stairs and then he hits you with this high d surprise you know it, it's like he's opened up his range here and then he surprises you by opening it up even farther look at all those chord tones it's all just coming down b flat seven all this is just coming down B-flat-7, nothing else. That's the challenge. Mm -hmm. 
kind of hits you with a nine here right but it takes a long time to get there and it does sound really ahead of his time here that g it's like it sounds like the future that hasn't happened yet even in his solo it's super super progressive there it is I think he goes to another nine there. Look at that. Cool. Look, at where all the, all the, look at all the chord tones are emphasized. I'm going to play this lick. Baba dee bum. I'm going to play it again. Baba dee bum. You know? I set you up here. Here's my fastball. Here's the sinker, folks. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I played this lick one time. When I play it again, it's, a, it's just a step lower than you thought it was going to be. It's that it, it, the expectation here. You know, like this sets up an expectation. You hear it coming again. That surprise makes you say, oh, wow. You know, wow, that's different than I've planned. And it kind of resets your brain. Check it out again. Hey, Dr. Carney. Yeah. We had a quick question. So uh, you're talking about Sidney Bechet. At that time, and I was talking to our musician earlier about this, how uh -huh. conscious were they about the theory of what, what we're looking at now? How what? How conscious were they about the theory? Or how strict were they about, you know, hitting these chord changes? Was it more about the style of what they played or they sat down and they strategically thought to themselves, okay, I want to really hit on the seventh or this flat, you know, on the sixth or the blues. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, you know, especially early on, it was uh, like jazz was very secretive. So I, I would say we sort of don't have some of the answers to that because like, it was like a source of, like personal pride, like you kind of knew what you were doing and you weren't going to tell some kids how to do it. Right. So what, what, what we do know is that Boucher and Armstrong, especially the two of them more than any other people were like, they were the best at executing the plan of jazz, you know, and that plan was to play the arpeggios and the chords and some scales, but to really get to the chord tones um i don't know like the feel of it is is definitely the um outside of the suit you know <laughs> like the, the the but like when we talk about the harmony here we're talking about like the shirt underneath it and the tie you know what i mean it's very buttoned up so the outside of like louis armstrong and bachet is like this the you know, there are these gigantic personalities. And I think that it's like you, you had to still have that there. There's no way. It's not just music theory. Um, but what what is interesting is that how much of that 
person, um, they could play through the music theory, you know? So the theoretical world, it's like, it's like the, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, the personality part of the sound and all that. It's a interesting question. Um, but the, like the sound of it definitely was like a big vibrato, a big spirit that had to come out of your horn. Um, and they were the biggest, you know, they were the biggest personalities to play through their instrument, like in that sort of soulful way. I think they moved the notes the most or they had the most vibrato, the most extreme personalities through the horn. But they also had like really solid theory in their playing that made it work or that built the story of their soul, right? It built the framework. It doesn't really, you can play the theory of it and not have the spirit without a doubt, right? You can definitely do that. But when you've got the spirit and you have the theory, that's what creates Louis Armstrong or Bechet. Um, I totally agree with you on that because I'm, I'm looking at the notes and it looks so simplistic. Right. The way they interpret it. That right. everything because we hear so many technical players that can run up and down scales and arpeggios, right? Cool stuff, but then someone will play something more simplistic and just that right thing on the way home because you remember that line, right? So, and I hear much about musicians that didn't really know how to read music well back then, but they could just play it. They could they could, they could play it, you know. I, and like Bechet, I, I don't know if he was trained to read music i think that he was uh because i think he he came from a clarinet background which was more often uh, somewhat classically trained you know this and then you know i don't know like how much louis armstrong read music um i you know the story is that he didn't um i don't know how true that is i but i think they they learned um, like sort of the deeper part of music theory through their horns, you know? So like the idea of like reading, it's almost like sideways because they learned, they learned music theory, like as it exists in the performance world. Right. Like, I don't know how to explain that, but they just learned music theory by not just by ear, but by practice and habit and like, experience yes yeah they learned it through experience and it, it like what's crazy is like like if like this bar right here he could have like other people that weren't as good as Bechet or armstrong they would play this lick and they might play an a here because they were just grooving on f major right but Bechet or armstrong or the the real best players they would never play an a here Right, because it's not part of the B flat seven. The other guys that were maybe less advanced, they would they might have the A here because they think of this whole thing as sort of F major with some chords in it, and they don't really hear like each individual chord. But I mean, Bech we're here. Bechet is just going straight up and down the harmony, you know, just amazingly like clear. Um, let's look at the next person here and um, we could listen to any of these guys 
um, all day. I want to do a little bit of Lester Young. Okay, we're, we're jumping ahead like, you know, I don't know, 20 years. I started over here on them. So if we see, again, and I think to some extent, you know, the people that were really figuring it out, first of all, they hung out with each other and talked things out. You know, they got together with their friends. So Lester Young probably didn't figure all this out by himself, right? He probably hung out with cats his age, piano players and guitar players or bass players, and they talked it through. Like, and they shared information together to figure out, and they looked at lead sheets like the song, almost like being in love. When you look at the melody, the melody teaches you, like, he's going to play the melody here, and you'll see that the melody is oftentimes the third of the chord. You know, um, whenever you've got this sort of minor two five, you have this F sharp minor B seven, you can sit on the fourth. Right. That's like a, it would you, the only way I would learn that is by seeing it in a lead sheet. Like, I don't think I would ever hear that. I think, I think some of this is like the sort of world of like looking at charts, but also playing by ear and like learning from different, like some of it's a little bit visual. Some of it, a lot of it is playing by ear and just stealing it off the record. Right. But you can see how they could have picked up little bits of information from the lead sheet for this. That, like, if you look at this G major, there's the B, there's the third of the chord, here's the third of the chord, and how this kind of moves over to the B over the F sharp minor. And then this is the seventh, and then this goes to the root, you know? Look at this, walk straight up eight minor, it comes to the major seventh again, there's the third. So, a lot of like what what you would learn as an improviser is there's a lot of thirds and sevenths in here. You know, there's a lot of thirds and you can kind of walk through the other notes. Let's check out Lester a little bit. This melody right here teaches you a whole bunch about jazz. This part right here, the bridge. It's a, so you got F sharp. It doesn't work with the chord, but it happens over and over when you look at lead sheets. And you start to learn that the F sharp can work because you can think of it two ways. One, the F sharp just really belongs to this F sharp seven here because the two five are always together right or you could think of it as the fourth of a minor chord kind of works over a minor chord um if you think of it a different way also look at this melody this whole thing is f sharp seven 
F sharp, C sharp, D sharp, E, G sharp, F sharp. This goes to the one chord, and you got the five, three here motion. Um, there's different ways you can approach it to get the same sort of knowledge, right? If you look at the next line, this is the third of the B minor. This is the root, and there's the root going up to the fourth like we did over here. Right, so the cats are kind of aware. They're kind of stealing from melodies, I think, and kind of common, you know, musical sense here. Let's check it out. talk about things here a little bit i mean it's just great listening first of all but we we're like in this new world where the soloist still he's he's still going to play a lot of chord tones but he might stretch out a little bit longer away from those chord tones that's the way i would kind of describe it right i would describe it as the chord tones of Sidney Bechet are still here but the soloist hangs out in, in flight sort of a little bit longer away from those chord tones. Like at the top of this line here, we got this B, D, E, comes down to the seventh. Da, 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 a little chromatic motion here for sure. And then just this F sharp, C sharp, A. He's just hiding from the D. He doesn't really want to play the D here. He's just playing the third the seventh, fifth, third, seventh, fifth, third. Look, you know what I mean? A perfect outline of the chord without playing the D, which would be sort of the most obvious note. So in that sense, like this little phrase, if he plays the D, it kind of it can be kind of heavy or flat-footed, right? So he's delaying that landing, like I was talking about, he's kind of hanging out in space just a little bit longer. And again, he's improvising, but he's still playing the melody that he was playing before. This is still the same phrase, right? Let's back it up just a touch. Let's back it up again. Like that little F sharp is a little confusing. A little confusing. Like, is he thinking of it as the six? You know, it could be, he could be that this is a little more harmonically adventurous. Um, hard to say. 
sometimes I think we can like over pigeonhole people. Like, okay, it's hard to say like for sure, but like he could be thinking about that D a little bit early. See how if you if you think about this as D major over here, it starts to work. This is like a you know like a chromatic sort of substitution for the F sharp. Ba -da 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 -da. You know, or he could be thinking of this as an extension of that E minor seven, or it could be the six or the thirteen of A seven. One thing's for sure, you can package it all up and say this is all part of the D major, right? And check out this. If you think of this all as D major, this whole line is thinking of this whole thing as D major scale. This is just the F is the only one that's not in there. And you could think of that as, as again, like a chromatic, like um, alternative to the repetitive F sharp here. This definitely hits the E minor, right? Seven, five, sorry, uh, seven, five, three, five, three, one. I think he'd probably just like this F sharp here because he plays E minor down and he's like, let me get up above this E chord, you know? There's no way to tell exactly. If any, you know, I don't like people overly. Um, committing a transcription to like some religious absolutes because you can't really get in somebody's head. You can get near a person's great ideas, but sometimes you got to say, I don't know, man, that's just Lester Young doing his thing. <laughs> Right here, oh, Bob, to me, it's still like the E minor. To me, this is even though this this D B, you can't really resolve that too hot on an E on an A seven, and you don't know if the piano the piano player could have been reading a chart, honestly, that was E minor for two bars instead of E minor A seven, or it could have been A seven over here. A lot of times when you look at the older charts, you, like you don't see exactly the way the charts are written today like you might see something that's just like four bars of d major but the piano player is kind of planing through the chord or something like that let's back it up just a little i thought just d Also, part, part of the older style to me is very versed in chromaticism, sort of substitutions like this right here with this F to F sharp, like the, like the freedom to move chromatically between uh, chord tones or add a chromatic neighbor is so important. Um, and we don't do it enough, which is like practice things. The older style, you would hear somebody Somebody's not afraid to do this. Uh, let's, I'm gonna play like my G triad. 
Right, but that's, it's not necessarily as sort of hip today to do that. But you have to be able to do it because um, that language still sounds really fresh when you've played a bunch of modern stuff. Sounds really cool to do that. Sounds even better on a minor chord. Right, that little chromatic lower neighbor. You can also do an upper neighbor. Uh, right, it sounds like an old movie score, sort of. Um, so yeah, that's what that's kind of what my impression of what Lex Lester's doing there. That low, that like lowered chromatic neighbor on the F sharp chord. Let's jump ahead to our next person. What's cool is that Lester Young is kind of stretching the space out, you know, like he magically does of just like making the chords bigger than they seem almost by his phrasing just kind of stretches time and he's not in a hurry to get anywhere and he, he can play the chord or he can be late to it and that's still okay. He can get there early and that's still okay. Um, let's listen to one more. I'm going to play a little Johnny Hodges here. Uh, no, maybe let's do Coleman. No, let's do Johnny Hodges. Then we'll do Coleman Hawkins for like a kind of transition to Marso. Again, this is like Johnny Hodges. I don't want to put him in the sort of old school category, but um, I think he kind of represented sort of an advanced version of the older uh, way of thinking about jazz to me, um, which was again very chord tone centric. Like play your chords, play them super well, and then just so much personality and so much finesse in the like the lyricism of your story. In the modern style, when you look at Charlie Parker, it's not you know it's it's much less poetic than Johnny Hodges, or it's much, you know I mean? It's, it's less romantic. It's more of this dry, modern sound. It's like heavy-handed approach, or like punch you in the face type of jazz. Um, I think, I always felt like Johnny Hodges is sort of the end of that, like, gracefulness of the early era. In Coleman Hawkins, we start to see the beginning, like the beginning of the new style or switching over to this tougher saxophone player character. You know, the early cats... Uh, to me in general, to overgeneralize, just represent the sort of beautiful way of music. And in general, as we get to the modern style, it's more of a sort of a tough guy approach to music. Um, yeah, let's check a, a little bit of this. It's a great solo on All of Me with the uh, Duke's band, of course. That's a perfect example. Look out, like it's really hard playing here. The stuff he's playing is no joke, but it is still very traditional. 
You know what I mean? Um, people, 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 a lot. This is all F, F major. And then this is all A7. So he, in a sense, is it's like an advanced form of tapestry that's really well woven, but it's the same style as Boucher. He's not looking for as you know, he's not looking for those harmonic extensions in the stratosphere like Coltrane or Michael Brecker or, or uh, Kenny Garrett. He's the master at staying, in a sense, grounded on the chords. You know, he can play just as much technical stuff, and that's sort of a misunderstanding. Um, some young players, you know, get into is to think like, oh, it's like easier to play the old style. Uh, okay, <laughs> you know. Um, try and you know Johnny Hodges will play circles around you technically like you can pick your pocket and you won't even know that your wall is gone you know um, it's just so so much finesse but still like sort of religious about the chord tone approach check it out we'll back it up a little bit here like if you look at this F major look how he's just running up and down he's running up the sort of basics of F major here over here, we've got like a lot of G minor happening, gets up to the root of the C7 chord here. It's just so hard to do. Oh, hold on. Uh, hold on, Mike, give me one second. So this would be a great time if you're listening, just to remind you that you can always go to our website. If you're enjoying this uh, session and you want to check out the past sessions, you can go to clearwaterjazz.com slash education. Uh, check out the archives. There's plenty and plenty of great teaching like this and, uh, you know, history lessons and theory, uh, whether you're a seasoned musician or not. Uh, this is a great place to get some good information. But back to you, Dr. Carney. Sure, sure. Sorry about that. I just had to grab the door. Um, so, yeah, again, it's A7. This is a perfect A7 right, triad, but it's much busier maybe, right? Or it's also sort of disjointed. E, A, E, A, E, E, pop, oh, bah, 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 you know? He surprises you by sort of changing octaves in a sense. Look at this little lick on G minor. I mean, this is just, it is, it's like, it's chromaticism at its best, right? This F sharp to G, like I was playing earlier on my horn, that lower neighbor. And then like this, this E flat is an upper neighbor here of the D, which is belongs to the G minor. And then you got ba -da -da, another lower neighbor with the F sharp back to the G. And then this, ba -da -da -da. I think he's getting to the next chord here on that the B flat. Yeah, he's aiming, he's, this, he's thinking of this E flat as like, a, you know, the flat six of G minor taking you to the B flat. But that is like some um, graceful voice leading there, you know. And again, I don't, this isn't like um, magical improvisation. This isn't magic. He has practiced this before. To me, that like this type of lick is a lot of practicing the lower neighbors or upper neighbors of your chord tones and being able to do it because you've practiced it before. I'm not implying that he's not improvising. I'm 
just letting you know it doesn't ever just happen. It comes from research. It comes from research on the chords and outlining the basics of the chord. And then in this example here, he's outlining with lower neighbors and upper neighbors. So this is just this whole, this lick, this lick is like, it's like four or five music lessons in itself. <laughs> Back it up so you can hear it one more time. Right here. Now, if you could hear Duke say, well, you know, ah, <laughs> grab already played that. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> you know? And then the thing, here's the other beautiful thing here is I would encourage people to go listen to Johnny Hodges play four different versions of All of Me. All right. And then you start to get an understanding for what jazz is because you'll hear him play it like it has these repetitive things that happen. Like he plays this on his other solo. He plays this on the other solo. He plays this look on the other solo, but he plays them, you know, at different parts of the solo. Right. So uh, it's like this sort of in between world of creating good stuff that you've practiced, but you're not, you're still improvising and how you're going to play it. You know, like on the other album, he might play it on beat two, or he might play half of the phrase. Right. But it isn't, again, it doesn't come from nowhere. Um, he's sort of in a sense, practiced this solo through a lot of times and still when he improvises, it's different every single night. But it is based on a library of research, in a sense. It's not, it's not just practicing and then hoping for the best. It's not that. <laughs> Let's back it up one more time. I just want to hear that lick one more time. Then... Right here we go. I'll look up major. Woo! Slick, he just drags that into smithereens, drags it right off the table. But it, if you look at it on paper, it's just my F major coming straight up. He doesn't even look, he doesn't even bother with a D7. You know, he's in the spirit of the moment, and it's like that F natural doesn't even doesn't even matter because you established so much F major right here. He can just he's kind of just playing through it, and he like might be enjoying the moment. He's he's not trying to sort of hit every single chord, so he's like burning through the chord in a sense. Back it up one more time, like it's just it's it's one of those beautiful moments of. Um, of playing over the rules, like you can get away with it. And it sounds really elegant when you do it once in a while, but let's say that he plays F major over this whole song or for four bars and he blows off the chords, then it doesn't work. It works because it's a moment of escape from the chords. There it is. And that last note, I mean, that's just, it's like a heartbreaker. When I, when I hear this note, 
and, and what, here's a, here's another crazy thing. Throughout his life, um, John Coltrane was often asked, "Who's the greatest saxophone player in the world?" You know what his answer was? Johnny Hodges. <laughs> Johnny Hodges. I, I don't know if he quit playing alto because of Johnny Hodges, but he felt like Johnny Hodges was the greatest person to ever touch the saxophone, which sounds crazy because if you know Coltrane, it doesn't sound like Johnny Hodges. He had like incredible respect for his like person coming through the horn. You know, he didn't need to be sound like Johnny Hodges to uh, try and be the second Johnny Hodges. So he kind of went, goes off on his own adventure to become the first Coltrane. But that note there, like that's the kind of note that he plays on the bottom here. This is the kind of note that makes you want to quit playing saxophone. Because whenever like I hear Johnny Hodges play that big, just big old C, it, it's just so much music in that one note uh, that it, it's, it's devastating. <laughs> But it's also, I would encourage you, you know, to think like Johnny Hodges and just play a big old beautiful note for people sometimes because um, people like sound more than they like music. They like, you know what I mean by that? They like the sound of beautiful noise is more important than the sort of music theory of the music. So he set this all up with all this incredible theory and then this big note just says, oh, yeah, but I can do this to you also. <laughs> Here it is. It's so it's so hard to do too. I wish I could sit and tell you, I'm like I have this all figured out. But he's um, it's just so intimidating to see him on paper with some of these arpeggios and the simplicity of that big note. But then he comes back and just hits you over the head with this really difficult arpeggio stuff. That's as difficult as anything Coltrane ever played. You know. So that's all I want to leave you guys for today. That's to me. This is a great one to go check out um, to really just kind of watch it on YouTube when you're tired of practicing and put on some, put on a transcription of somebody and look at their notes and say, Oh, I can do that too. I see you can kind of, you get to see what people are thinking a little bit um, and you see that they stay close to the religion of the notes. They stay really close to the one, three, five, and seven. Um, it's always built around that. When we get into our next episode we're going to look at getting away from the root and getting away from the chord and the like the difference that that sound makes there's not one is not better than the other you have to play both styles in order to survive as a musician so i hope that helps and i hope you guys have a, a good rest of your day practicing Awesome, awesome session, Dr. Carney. We thank you for uh, giving us some great knowledge on the different styles and uh, just transcribing. It, I'm such a visual learner, so I appreciate when you pop that on the screen and show sure. different resources that are available. Um, YouTube, you can go on Spotify, everywhere to just listen, listen, listen. That's where you're going to get a lot of yeah. Um, so I really appreciate you doing that for us and breaking it down. And there's nothing wrong with just taking things slow, dissecting it, 
and right. just looking at things for what they are. So right. um, great, great training today. And I just want to remind everyone, if there's a uh, if you have any feedback or if there's any future session topic you want to suggest to us, uh, just please email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com. And don't forget, there's so many free sessions and I will stress free. You know, there's someone that's paying for private lessons right now to get this type of information. Sure. Get it for free. So don't just keep it to yourself. Spread the word. Share the link with someone that may could benefit from this. And you could check out everything we're doing at clearwaterjazz.com slash education. And, um, you know, we have some great things coming up. So stay tuned. There's more sessions coming this week. And check out that archive. And I'm your guest host, Michael Canodo. And thank you for joining us. And we'll see you on the next one. Keep it swinging, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.